Well, hey, good morning. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and open up to Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7. We are uh, closing out a series walking through the book of Micah this morning. Uh, and while you're turning there, one of the things uh, I really enjoy reading are mystery novels because it is a uh, much different reading experience than just reading a more of a kind of traditional novel or story because with a more traditional story, uh, even if it's a really good story, I don't usually get that feeling of I've got to drop like everything I'm doing and figure out what happens in this book right now. Uh, but I do for a good mystery novel. I mean, even if the characters are a little bit flat, it really doesn't matter uh, as long as the hook and the setup of the mystery is good, you've got to, to race to the end to figure out what happens. You've got to get uh, to the payoff. And so uh, you race through the book to the conclusion where everything comes into focus. And once you get the conclusion, once you get the solution to the mystery, uh, that, that conclusion really functions like a key that goes back and unlocks all the doors that were closed before, a light that lights up all those kind of small details that you read and you thought, maybe that was important, but I don't really know why, uh, suddenly you're able to look back and think, oh, that's why he said that. That's why she did that. That's why he went to that place. I get it. It all makes sense now. Again, we're coming to the end of the book of Micah. Micah chapter 7, what it does is it really functions like the end of a mystery novel. All throughout this book, the prophet Micah has been highlighting the the depths of the people of God's sin, the way that they have turned away from God and have rebelled against Him and have corrupted themselves. And he's been highlighting the fact that God is going to judge them for that in the form of exile. The Babylonians and the Assyrians are going to come into Israel, take them out of their land, and make them their captives and slaves. But, but all throughout the book, Micah has been dropping hints and promises and trails of breadcrumbs to tell us that in spite of of how wicked his people are, in spite of the depths of their sin, God is somehow going to make a way to save them. God is somehow going to make a way for, for them to be right with him. He will send a king who will usher in his kingdom. He will be their shepherd. He will guide them. He'll lead them out of exile. He is going to save them. But, but up to this point in the book, those two realities of judgment and salvation have really just been left unreconciled to each other. They've stood in tension with one another, and you really can't see how they're going to come together. But Micah chapter 7, it, it gives us the answer. It's the key that unlocks every door that was closed before, the key that makes everything else fall into place, the key that shows us how you and I can have the hope of salvation uh, despite the depths of our sin. What, really what we have in Micah chapter 7 is the gospel according to Micah. And so let's look at this together. Micah chapter 7, we're going to read uh, the entire chapter, starting in verse 1. The very word of God to us today speaks to us like this. It says, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There's no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there's no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil, to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. 
Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until He pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon His vindication. Then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day the boundary shall be far extended. And that day they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nation shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Let's pray for God's help on our time together. Father, would you give light to the word that you inspired? Would you help us to see? Thank you for the opportunity. To, to preach your grace and forgiveness that is so clearly on display in this passage. Thank you that there's no one who's a God like you. God, would you give us the grace to see this, to believe it, to walk in the forgiveness you offer us? Would you help us to believe the good news of the gospel? Not just assent to it with our heads, but would you help us to get it in our hearts and get it in our guts and live in light of it, and walk in light of it. Please do that even now as we walk through your word. I pray that you would in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, in chapter 6, God brought a lawsuit against his people. He summoned them to court, and he brought charges against them. And so here in chapter 7, we get the prophet Micah's own response to these charges, his own response uh, to the situation that's going on right now in Israel. And so he laments, and he says, woe is me because I've become like the fields after harvest. I've become like the vines after all the fruit has been stripped off of them. There's no food there. There's no life. Uh, there's nothing left to eat. He paints this picture of Israel's society at the time, and he basically says, 
God's right in His judgment. God's right in His charges. We are totally corrupt from head to toe. Uh, There's nobody upright. Everyone's violent and dangerous. Everyone is evil. He says in verse 3 that they've gotten really practiced. They've gotten really good uh, at doing evil and that all the leaders uh, are terrible. They just serve for money. They're just looking out for themselves and, and they're constantly uh, uh, colluding together. It says, he, they, says they weave it together. That means all the different leaders in Israel are colluding together to make it harder for ordinary people to get justice. He says the best of them is like a briar patch and like a thorn hedge, which means you interact with any of them, you're going to get stung. You're going to get cut. And, and so Micah says because their society is so corrupt and so wicked... Don't trust your friends. Don't trust your neighbors. Don't even trust your spouse. Don't trust the people who are living in your house because if you tell them your plans for how you're going to keep safe when the enemy comes in to take you captive, they're going to use that against you. They're going to cross you and double cross you so that they can stay safe and look out for themselves and they're going to put you uh, into captivity. And so, Again, we're getting this picture of a society that's just wicked from head to toe. Everyone's only looking out for themselves. Everyone's dangerous uh, and violent. This is Micah's situation, but but notice the shift that he takes in verse 7. I mean, literally, everything is going to hell in a handbasket around him, but he doesn't focus on any of that, does he? He says, but as for me, I will wait for the Lord. I will look to the God who saves me. My God will hear me. This is the confidence that Micah has. Even though everything around him is caving in, he has confidence because of who his God is. Because look at what he says God is going to do for him in verse 8. He tells his enemy, don't rejoice over me uh, because God is going to act for me. He says, yes, I will sit in darkness. I will fall. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him. Mike is again talking about the exile. The Israelites are going to experience God's judgment in exile as, as they're taken captive. That's going to happen. But Micah says after that judgment of exile, God is actually going to turn and He's going to bring them out into the light. He's going to plead their cause. He's going to take up their cause and execute judgment not against them, but for them. He's going to bring them out into the light. And and verse 10 says when he does this, the situation is going to be reversed. All those nations that laughed and mocked and and doubted God's power to save his people are going to be put to shame uh, when God does this, when he brings his people out into the light. Now, Micah's confidence and hope here should absolutely shock us. Because we've seen throughout the book, like, we're not just kind of bad. We're not good people who sometimes mess up and do bad things. We are thoroughly corrupt. We are driven by idolatry and coveting and oppression and abuse of power and injustice. And Micah hasn't shied away from any of that. He has laid out that sin in great detail. So he knows all of that, but yet in spite of all of that, He has this bold confidence that God is actually going to act for him and for his people and take up their cause in spite of their sin. How can he have the confidence that God is going to do that? Because if you look at verse 11, that's not all that God promises to do. God says once he brings his people back out into the light, 
He's also going to expand their borders. He's going to grow his kingdom so that his kingdom wouldn't just be concentrated in a little strip of land in the Middle East. It would spread throughout the entire earth. And Gentiles, people from the nations, are going to come in and are going to become a part of God's kingdom so that God's kingdom would be multi-ethnic and multinational. And again, spreading throughout the entire earth. And in verse 14, Micah asked God to shepherd his people again like he once did to lead them and guide them and bring them back to a garden-like land, like the Garden of Eden. And in verse 15, God replies and says He will. He will, just like in the days when He brought them out of Egypt and showed wonders and might with His arm. He's going to do this again for His people. And when He does this, the nations around are going to see the power of God and they're going to fear Him and be in dread of Him just like they were in the Exodus. This is what God says in verse 16 and 17. When he does this again, it's going to happen again in an even greater way for his people. And so we're getting these promises that that in spite of the people's sin, God is somehow going to make a way to gather them, to bring them out of exile, to gather them up again, to shepherd them, lead them, and guide them like he once did, to expand their borders so that their kingdom would spread throughout the entire earth, again, in spite of their sin. I mean, we just saw how wicked their society is, and yet Micah's got this hope, and he's laying out these promises that, that the day is coming when God's actually going to transform them, that God's going to transform their society so that they don't look like this anymore. And so, again, how can God do this? How can God make these promises? Well, Micah begins to point us to the answer in verse 18. He ends this chapter with a hymn, with a song to God. And look again at what he says in verse 18. He says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. And so Micah begins his hymn by saying, who is like God? And the answer is clearly, no one. No one is like our God. But, but notice the specific way that, that Micah says that God is in a class of his own. He says God is unlike every other God because he passes over iniquity and he pardons transgression for the sake of his inheritance. Every other God offers you salvation if you can earn it. If you can be devoted enough, if you can clean up your life enough, if you can work hard enough for that God, that God might in turn uh, show salvation to you and, and make you acceptable before him if you can do it well enough. But the God of the Bible is so different because God offers his people forgiveness and salvation before they clean their lives up, before they get their act together, before they stop sinning. Not just that, Micah says also that God is unlike every other God because he does not keep his anger forever. That means he doesn't keep executing his judgment forever. Yes, he judges, but he doesn't do it forever. Why? Because he delights in steadfast love. If you'd allow me to be a little bit poetic, it, it's as if this is what excites God, getting to show steadfast love and getting to forgive his people. It's as if this is what gets God out of bed in the morning. He doesn't just show steadfast love. He delights in it. He delights to do this for his people. He judges, yes, 
but he judges to clear the way so that he can show off and display his steadfast love and get back to what he loves doing to do, what he, lo- what he delights in doing, forgiving his people. And, and because of this, look at what Micah says in verse 19 and 20. He says, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And so God promises after his judgment, he will again have compassion on his people. And he gives us two pictures of how he's going to do that. He's going to trample our sins under his feet, and he's going to throw them into the depths of the sea. If you were on a boat in the middle of the ocean and you dumped a cup of water over the side of the boat into the ocean, what's going to happen to that water? Well, almost immediately, uh, it's going to get swallowed up by the ocean water, mixed in with the ocean water, overpowered by the ocean water, and you're going to lose it. You're not going to be able to tell what was your water that came out of your cup and what's the ocean's water. It would be glorious enough if that's what Micah was saying, but Micah doesn't just say God's going to do that. He doesn't just say God's going to throw our sins into the sea. He says he's going to throw them into the depths of the sea. The the picture he's giving us here is that our sins are going to be gone, sunk to the bottom, dealt with, never to come back up again. We're, We're getting the picture that God is somehow one day going to fully and finally deal with our sins so that we would never have to fear the penalty for them and we would never have to fear condemnation for them ever again. And so, man, this is a, God's going to keep his promises, he says, to the, the promises he made to do this. And this is just a beautiful picture of God and a beautiful picture of the gospel that we're getting as we close out the book of Micah, that in spite of our sin, God is somehow going to make a way to completely forgive our sins and make us right with him. He's going to to, uh, trample our sins under his feet and throw them into the depths of the sea. But that naturally just keeps raising the question, how is God going to be able to do this? Because when Micah says God delights in steadfast love, he's echoing and alluding back to Exodus 34 when God declared his name to Moses and said that he's a God who's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, a God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but a God who will by no means clear the guilty. Like, justice is not just something that God does. God is just. And so how is God going to be able to forgive sinful and guilty people when he will by no means clear the guilty? And you know, we can't just say, well, well, God will just forgive people because as we've talked about often, you can't just forgive people. Forgiveness always comes with a cost. There's always a debt to pay if someone is going to be forgiven. So for example, if you loan out a friend $1,000 and you expect them to pay you back and they come back to you and they say, hey, I'm, I'm really sorry, I just can't come up with the money, I'm not going to be able to pay you back, will you please forgive me? And you say, yes, I'll forgive you of that debt. If you do that, does $1,000 magically appear in your bank account? I'll help you. No, it doesn't, right? Like, it, it does not happen. You're just out $1,000. And so the person you forgave didn't have to pay the $1,000. They didn't have to pay the cost. 
but you definitely did. Like, you had to eat the cost. You had to bear and pay the debt if you were going to forgive them. And so all true forgiveness comes with a cost. Because, uh, and so if God is going to forgive our sins completely and deal with them completely, someone is going to have to bear the cost. And so again, how can God do this? How can God at the same time delight in steadfast love, promise to fully forgive His people, and yet execute judgment and by no means clear the guilty? How can God do this? How? Well, you know how, don't you? The cross. The cross is the key that unlocks the mystery of Micah and the mystery of the Old Testament. Because on the cross, God himself is paying the debt for sin that you and I owe. On the cross, Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is bearing the debt in full in our place so that we would not have to. To forgive someone means you have to bear the cost and Jesus bears it to the full so that he can fully forgive us. The cross is how you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God made good on these promises in Micah to trample our sins under His feet and throw them into the depths of the sea. And so hear the Gospel according to Micah. If you will put your trust in what Jesus has done for you, God will fully, freely, and forever forgive every single one of your sins. Past sins, present sins, future sins you haven't even committed yet, He will forgive them in full. He'll throw them into the depths of the sea and drown them in the blood of His cross so that there would be nothing left that you owe, nothing you would have to pay, be forgiven fully and completely forever. And listen, the, all throughout the Bible, the, the sea, the ocean, uh, is, is symbolic for death and for chaos. Because, and so... To, in the Bible, to be thrown into the sea or to fall into the sea is basically like a death wish. It means you're probably going to die, which makes sense, doesn't it? Because and the sea is so much bigger than us, and it's so much vaster than us, so much more powerful than us. I mean, even with all of our technological advances, we got a very unfortunate reminder lately with OceanGate that, that we are not more powerful than the sea, that we cannot conquer it. I mean, even right now, still, more than 80% of the ocean is still unmapped, unobserved, and unexplored by human beings. Well, the way Jesus defeats our sin and death is by going into and through death and coming out victorious into life on the other side. And so the picture Micah is giving us here, it's as if Jesus puts on our sins like a backpack, dives into the depths of the sea, goes down to the bottom of the sea where no one has been able to go before, takes off that backpack, leaves it at the ocean floor, and then ascends back up out of the water into the other side. Now, if he has done that, if he has gone where nobody can go, and if he has conquered what no one else can conquer, then you can know that your sins really are dealt with, that they really are gone, that they really are not coming back up for air Again, God is trying to embolden us with confidence in His promise with this picture. Your sins being thrown into the depths of the sea means they really are dealt with and they will never come back up again. Jesus really did pay it all and you're free from condemnation forever. Now, but here's the deal. 
I don't know anyone here who's, who's been in church for a little while and has, has heard the gospel. I don't know anybody here who would disagree with that. I don't know anybody who would say, you know, we probably shouldn't sing Jesus paid it all. That's, that's not real theologically correct. We should probably be a little bit less ambitious and say Jesus paid it some. I mean, throw our sins into the depths of the sea. Let's not get too crazy here. That would be ridiculous. Like, no, no one would say that. We all understand that, that in the gospel of Jesus... Our sins really are fully and completely forgiven. But, but so often we live just like that, like we don't believe that. Uh, Corey Tinboom often said about this verse, when God throws our sins into the depths of the sea, uh, he puts up a sign that says no fishing. But so often we do just that. We go fishing for our sins, and we may profess with our mouths that we are fully forgiven, but our functional belief, the way we live our lives, is that really... We're actually not. And so if we're going to walk in the fullness of the forgiveness that God is offering us here, we've got to help uh, get the gospel uh, from our heads down into our hearts. And so what I want to do is just give you three ways we diminish God's forgiveness in our lives, three ways we go fishing for our sins, uh, and then the resource Micah gives us to help us fight against that, how he gives us the resource to help the gospel move from our heads down into our hearts. And so when we sin, and when we feel shame and guilt over that sin, uh, we usually do one of three things in response. We either beat ourselves up, we try to clean ourselves up, or we minimize our sin in the hopes that that will minimize the shame and guilt we feel over it. And so sometimes we beat ourselves up. We sin and we feel shame and guilt over that sin. And we feel like, you know, if I can just hit myself with the whip on the back enough, if I can just grovel enough, if I can just replay it over and over in my head about how awful I am and how awful the thing I did was, if I can engage in enough self-pity and feel bad enough about myself, then maybe that will be enough to atone for my sin and God won't ask for any more payment from me. And so we engage in self-pity and self-abuse, usually with our words, but, but sometimes this escalates to even doing this physically because we feel like if we can just do this well enough, maybe God will overlook and excuse our sin. Maybe that will be enough to pay for it, but it never works. You never get to a point where you've beaten yourself up enough and felt bad enough about yourself to really pay for that sin and feel like you have paid it off. Other times what we do is we try to clean ourselves up. We try to cancel out the bad thing we've done with some good deeds. And so we sin and we feel shame and guilt over it. And then we think, okay, well, if I can just get a little bit more consistent in my quiet time, if I can be a little bit more engaged at church, if I can spend a little bit more time in prayer, then that will be enough for, to cancel out that sin, and God will overlook it, and I'll be good with God again. And so we make all these promises to God about, God, I'm, I'm never going to do it again. I'm not going to sin in that way. I'm finally going to get serious about my relationship with you. I surrender all. Here it is. And, and you can know you're doing this. You can know if you're trying to clean yourself up uh, in response to your sin, if when someone asks you about how your relationship with God is, or when you think about your relationship with God, if you automatically start putting things into columns, if you automatically start trying to balance the accounts of, well, I, I lied last week, but I did read my Bible three days in a row this week, or yeah, I looked at porn again last week, but I spent 30 minutes in prayer uh, with God on Monday, so maybe that cancels it out. Maybe God is okay with me 
after that. But this never works either because trying to cancel out a bad deed with a good one would be like you being tried in court for murder and your defense before the judge is, well, yeah, judge, I I did murder the person, but at least I didn't commit adultery. Like, sure, that's great, but, but that's really not relevant right now, right? Because you did murder someone and you not committing adultery is not going to change the fact that you did that. And so this never works to get rid of our shame and guilt because deep down we know we actually are guilty. We know we need to pay that payment is owed for this sin and this just enslaves us to this treadmill of sinning and feeling guilt and then trying to earn it, trying to work it off and feeling like you're this close to being good with God, feeling like you're this close into being in a good relationship with Him. And then you sin again and you put yourself back in the red and have to start the cycle all over again. Other times what we do is we minimize our sin, and we can do this in different ways. Sometimes we attack the person who brought up the sin in our lives, and so we'll think things like, she doesn't have a clue what she's talking about. I mean, she's such an idiot. What would she know uh, about my life? Or, I mean, he's, a, he's an absolute degenerate. What would he have to tell me about how to live my life? Has he looked in a mirror lately? Other times what we do is we do what the Puritan Thomas Brooks said, and we paint sin with virtue's colors. And so what what that means is we justify to ourselves, we'll say things like, well, you know, I'm not lazy and irresponsible, I just like to rest. I'm not a coward, I don't lie, I just didn't give her all the facts because she wasn't going to be able to handle it. You know, I'm not greedy, I'm just financially responsible. I'm just making sure that I save. I'm not selfish and unaccountable to anybody. I'm just an introvert. Other times what we do is we shift the blame off of ourselves onto someone else, and so we say things like, sure, I yelled at you. Yeah, I got mad, but it's only because you made me mad first. I I never would have yelled at you if you wouldn't have started it. Other times what we'll do is we'll just say the person is exaggerating. They're blowing our sin way out of proportion. But whatever way we do it, we downplay and minimize our sin as a way to try to downplay and minimize the shame and guilt we feel over it. But it never works because our conscience accuses us and we feel it. Trying to minimize your sin is like trying to hold a beach ball underwater. The harder you press on it, the more likely it is it's going to slip out from your fingers and pop back up over the water again. All three of these responses are dead ends for our joy in God, and all three of them come back to not really believing the gospel. Because if if when you sin, if you try to minimize your sin, you do that because in your heart of hearts, even if you'd never express it this way, in your heart of hearts you believe, I'm not the type of person who does things like that. I'm the type of person who's good enough to earn my salvation. If you beat yourself up or you clean yourself up when you sin, you're doing that because you believe in your heart of hearts that your standing with God and your relationship with Him is based on how well you can balance the accounts, how well you can work things off, how well you can perform to cancel out that sin. But in none of these are we actually believing the gospel. In none of these are we actually believing that our relationship and standing with God has always been based on His grace and His mercy and His forgiveness and not our works at all. 
And so this is just a really good test to, to let you know if you're growing in your, your be- functional belief and your understanding of the gospel, if you're beginning to actually get it. Here's the test. Where do you run when you sin? I mean, when you absolutely blow it, do the thing you said you were never going to do again, where do you run? Do you run to God for grace and mercy and forgiveness and power to change? Or do you run from God to beat yourself up or clean yourself up, thinking once I do that, then I can come back in his presence and be acceptable before him again? People that understand the gospel run to God and not from God when they sin because they understand their relationship with God has always been and always will be based on his grace and mercy and not their performance at all. And this is actually what Micah gives us in this passage. In verses 7 through 10, he gives us the resource to show us how to run to God and not from him when we sin, how to help get the truth of the gospel down from our head into our hearts. And so in verses 7 through 10, when Micah is talking about the enemy, don't see that as the Babylonians or the Assyrians, because ultimately the enemy that Micah is talking about here is the devil. I mean, he is the one who the Bible says is the accuser of God's people. He's the one who rejoices over us and mocks us and taunts us when we sin. But because of the cross, we can take up Micah's bold confidence and hope. We can We can look our sin full in the face and not downplay it, minimize it, make excuses for it, justify it, or try to get out from under the consequences of it at all. We can say, yes, I will bear the discipline of the Lord because I have sinned against Him, but I know my God will bring me out into the light. My God will vindicate me. My God will take up my cause. My God will execute justice for me. My God will hear me. How do you know? Again, through the cross. Because the cross and resurrection of Jesus does not just purchase our forgiveness, it purchases our justification. And what does that mean? That means that in the courtroom of heaven, God has looked at your life and He has declared the verdict over your life righteous and acceptable in His sight because of what Jesus has done. When you trust in Jesus, God unites you to Him And the great exchange happens. He takes your sin on Himself and pays for it in full on the cross. And in return, He gives you His righteous record of faithfulness and obedience. And so because Jesus has paid for your sins in full, has given you His record of obedience, has united you to Himself through His death and resurrection, it would now be unjust for God to demand a second payment for the sins that Jesus has already paid for. This is why 1 John 1 says that when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins. He does not say God's faithful and merciful, like He just acts like that didn't happen. He says He's faithful and just. It's why Micah says God will execute justice for Him. Like, hear me, Jesus does not plead for mercy on your behalf in heaven. He asks for justice on the basis of His sacrifice. He advocates for you in in heaven and says, it would now be unjust for you to punish them for sins that I have already paid for. And so this is how you've got to preach the gospel to yourself. When your conscience begins to accuse you and fills you with shame and guilt and you begin to think, 
I've just blown it this time. I've gone too far. There's no way God could still love me. You need to preach the gospel to yourself and say, yeah, God may be disciplining me, but he is not condemning me. Jesus was already condemned for me, and God will not ask for a second payment for the sins that Jesus has already paid for. He will not ask me to earn what's already been freely given. He will not make me pay for what Jesus has already paid for. He's not going to ask again for the same debt. It is just for God to forgive me. It is right for God to forgive me on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice. And when Satan comes to you and begins to accuse and try to terrify your conscience with shame and guilt... The truth of Micah 7 is what you've got to fight him with. This is how you rejoice over him when he tries to rejoice over you. Because this reversal that we see in verse 10, this is really the truth of the gospel that we see throughout the Bible. Colossians 2 says that in his death and resurrection, Jesus has triumphed over his enemies and has put them to open shame by defeating them and canceling out the record of death that stood among us, nailing it to his cross. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has defeated Satan and has stripped him of the only power he had to accuse us with. He's taken the only power Satan had to condemn us with. He's taken it away. This is why Romans 8.33 says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. And who's to condemn? Jesus is the one who died. More than that, the one who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. If Jesus was already condemned for you, what else could condemn you now? If God has already looked on your life and pronounced the verdict righteous, not guilty in His sight because of the work of Jesus, what higher court could Satan appeal to to say that you aren't actually righteous? And if Jesus has paid for and has canceled out the record of debt that stood against you on the cross, what payment is left for you to make for your sins? And so when Satan comes to you and he begins to accuse you and tries to terrify your conscience with guilt and shame, you've got to preach the gospel to yourself. When he comes to you and he says, you're a sinner and you're a failure, you say, you're right, I am, but Jesus is isn't. And when God looks at me now, He does not see my sins and my failures. He sees Jesus. Yes, I am a sinner, but the last time I checked, that's exactly who Jesus came to die for. And while I was still weak, while I was still ungodly, while I was still a sinner, Jesus loved me and gave Himself up for me. All of my sins have been nailed to His cross. He trampled them under His feet and threw them into the depths of the sea. That's how I know that God loves me. That's how I know that God is for me. That's how I know that God will hear me. That's how I know that God is with me and accepts me and will never reject me. So when you fight your sin like that, you will run to God and not from Him when you sin. You will walk in the joy of your forgiveness. You've got no reason in yourself to think that God would ever be gracious to you love you, and show favor to you. But you have every reason in Jesus to know that he will. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you that 
what Micah points us to, we see in full that through the cross you have drowned our sins in your blood and have thrown them into the depths of the sea. God, help us to believe that. Would you help us to believe it? Would you help us to avoid the ways we beat ourselves up or clean ourselves up or minimize our sin before you? Would you help us to look it full in the face and yet have this same bold confidence and hope that Micah has that in spite of our sin, we know you will take up our cause, you'll execute justice for us, and you will act for us because of what you've done for us in Jesus. God, help us to fight with this resource. Help us to walk in the truth that Micah gives us. Help us to do what's often one of the hardest things to do and simply believe that we really are forgiven and loved by you. God, would you do that in our hearts, even in this moment, as we respond to you now? I pray that you would. In your name, amen. And as we...